Hello and welcome to this week's Hong Kong Heritage. The South China Tiger roamed across southern China, including Hong Kong, until the 1950s and possibly into the 1960s. John Saiki is a big tiger fan and following on from his successful debut novel, The Tiger Hunters of Taiyo, he's back with a factual account this time. The Last Tigers of Hong Kong, true stories of big cats that stalked Britain's Chinese colony. I began by asking John what first attracted him to the subject of tigers. I think it came from a general interest in uh, Hong Kong wildlife. It just grew out of that. That came from just spending time in Hong Kong, going on hikes and discovering that there was just so much more countryside and wildlife in Hong Kong than I'd imagined before I went out to, to live there. And then just following, I guess, one species after another and, and, and discovering the tigers sort of at the top of that food chain. Yes, and used to roam Hong Kong. I agree with you. I think yeah. it does, uh, when you try and describe to people who don't live in Hong Kong, just the, the biodiversity that we have here. Mm. I mean, some of it under threat, like everywhere else. But uh, yeah, superb. Uh, and, and also, as you say, the, the variety of mammals that we, mm. we also have in, in Hong Kong. And at the top of that chain, as you say, was the tiger up until about, yeah. what, the 1960s? I would say into the 50s and possibly the 60s from, from the records that, that I've seen. So just about to come out <laughs> is The Last Tigers of Hong Kong, true stories of big cats that stalked Britain's Chinese colony. When we're talking about this tiger in, in southern China, is it the stripy-looking tiger? And uh, that isn't just... Yeah. Um, I remember you telling me before that isn't <laughs> just one species, but um, what sort of tiger would we have had in southern China in Hong Kong? It's the South China tiger, and it looks exactly like a, the classic tiger that you'd you'd expect to see. And it was a, it was recognised as a subspecies for a long time. Although most recently, the IUCN Red List has now sort of grouped tigers into just two groups: the continental tigers, and then there's the Sumatran tiger in Indonesia. But before, there was about nine subspecies. It's Siberian, the Bengal, the South China tiger. And it's quite interesting that, you know, I think these groupings change over time, depending on how it's looked at and how the sort of biology changes. But it was definitely, it was, it was known as the South China tiger and its heartland uh, would have been considered around Fujian province. And so Guangdong being within reach of that. And they, they wandered around quite long distances. The, the Hong Kong biologist, Jeffrey Herklotz, he had said that, the, you know, a typically South China tiger could be, could be wandering 40 miles a day. So they, oh, they right. went quite, quite far distances. They were very solitary as well. They kept away from each other as much as possible. And so that's why they were sort of all over South China, I think, um, right into the middle of the 20th century. Now, you've uh, looked at a variety of newspapers, including the China Mail, the South China Morning Post, which, of course, begins in 1903. But how far do your records go back? The records I looked at uh, went back to uh, 1900. So what's your first one? First sign of a tiger was just some tiger bones in the New Territories, where a journalist went up to investigate shortly after the acquisition of the New Territories by the British and it became more accessible to go there I guess and the stories could sort of filter through more and a curious journalist had heard some rumours and went up to the new territories and all he found were, were these bones that were attributed to the of the tigers 
And that was it. There wasn't really much amazement or too much curiosity. But around the same time, there were more reports coming in from places like Sumatra and Java and Bali and Malaya of much more spectacular tiger stories. For example, from Indonesia, there's a story of, of villagers who sort of like gladiator shows where 12 tigers had to fight against 100 men and it would end in the slaughter of, of the tiger. Mm. Um, so these are the kind of stories that were coming into the Hong Kong press. So when they compared that to a farmer maybe having seen some stripes uh, in the greenery, <laughs> then, you know, it did, I don't think it compared. So I don't think the interest was very high about the Hong Kong Tigers, it seemed. So um, in the early 1900s, as you say, you're, you're, they obviously are going more for the show. It sounds awful, though, that these these fights. But yes, the, the showmanship. Well, or... Yeah, there's that and, and the man-eaters, of course, you know, you know, tigers that might have been killed in, in India and they, they open up the tiger's stomach and they found a foot in it. Or, oh. You know, I mean, they basically they're made for much better stories. Whereas in Hong Kong, some pigs would go missing, some cattle would go. And it just, yeah, I think, I think it didn't quite capture the imagination of the reading public for a while, at least until 1915. Basically, yes, in 1915, you've got two police officers who are actually killed by a tiger. And you might have seen, there's a black and white photograph where yeah, you've got a lot of uh, police around and, and the key guy who shot this tiger and the tiger is actually upside down uh, being carted through on a pole. Yes, yeah. uh, that was killed by a policeman called Donald Burlingham. PC Goucher was the first responder, I guess, who went to follow up this report. Uh, he had actually heard of reports two months earlier in January and had sort of looked for, for like tiger paw prints, but it was in March when he actually found it. And they were in a group that were actually waiting for backup and they had heard that the tiger was hiding in the, in the bushes and one of the party members actually just threw a stone into the bushes to see what would happen and the tiger jumped out then and attacked uh, PC Goucher. They managed to scare it off after it had done a lot of damage to, to Goucher, but he wasn't actually dead at that point. It took four days before he died. At the beginning, they thought that he, he was going to survive, but it was reported that he took a downturn on, on the 12th of, of March and he died a few hours later. But it is, uh, but, and our, it is yeah. reported how his mood stayed very positive, though. Yes, and that, you know, it was very brave about it. And I don't know, I don't have the medical details, but it makes me wonder whether in the time of uh, mm. antibiotics, a couple of decades later, he might have survived that, that particular attack. But then it was Rutan Singh was in the second party. So Gaucho had already been attacked. The tiger had disappeared into the bushes. A second party came with Donald Burlingham. And then this time the tiger just pounced out of nowhere and attacked Singh. Now that's quite interesting because in the Hong Kong tiger stories, of which I think that you know there were there were there were scores of these stories over fifty years. There were there's not many stories about a tiger just actually coming out of nowhere and attacking people. But this tiger obviously knew that it was it was being hunted and had already had that encounter with Goucher, then had hid. Then Burlingham and the party were looking for it, and apparently they'd already decided to give up for the day, and they were they were about to leave. But the tiger had had ideas of its own and then came out of nowhere and attacked Singh and killed him straight away. 
Now, what I find interesting in your book, The Last Tigers of Hong Kong, is that, you, yes, you document these different cases. Uh, in the early years, you, you know, you're relying on about six different uh, newspaper reports or, or reports from six different newspapers, and some of them are more colourful than others. And, of course, this is uh, very tragic in 1915. But you also, while you're telling us the story of the tigers, the types of tigers, and later on we're going to hear about tiger hunters, what I found interesting in the way that... Uh, you tell this story is that you're actually giving us quite a bit of Hong Kong sort of political and economic history at the same time. An example of that is the issue of the, I think it was a general strike or the, the working strikes mm. in 1925. Yeah, well, I think Hong Kong being Hong Kong, I think, I think it's impossible to separate the natural history from the human history of this play, partly because it's so small, I think, but also because... And this is part of the difficulty at the beginning for me, was to find experts who could talk to me about Hong Kong tigers. They're really, if you wanted to study the South China tiger, you didn't come to Hong Kong, basically. You know, you passed through Hong Kong, and then you went into mainland China. So it's not really a place for just the, the pure wildlife. But we lived cheek by jowl with the whatever was around us, and, and then it turns out the most dangerous species here are, are humans. Um, humans have killed far more humans here than uh, any other animal. So it just seemed to come naturally to weave in what was going on in Hong Kong and how Hong Kong changed as the tigers were living out their last few decades of visiting mm. this territory. And also that's that for me also it was, you know, a tiger, there's something kind of timeless about wildlife. Uh, which seems to exist regardless of what's going on with humans. But in the small period that, that I was looking at from the newspaper archives, Hong Kong had completely transformed from this very sort of rural, clan-ruled new territories into a modern sort of post-war state uh, in the nuclear age in the 1950s. So seeing that change also have very direct implications about how the actual landscape was changing about how how there was sort of like you know squatter uh, areas were filling up uh, different sort of valleys and gullies around the new territories leaving less options for tigers uh, to be sort of hiding and disappearing so it just made sense to bring in what was going on uh, as as hong kong itself changed now, also, um, just while you're talking about the development of Hong Kong, and obviously pre-war, it's seen as much more quieter and a smaller population. Obviously, post-war, mm. a small population to kick off. And then you've got the huge arrival of, uh, over the next couple of decades, of refugees from mainland China, it's sort of enlarging mm. that population. So that's all going to make changes. But another thing is that, I mean, Hong Kong has gone through phases of forestation and deforestation in recent, mm -hmm. in those recent recent decades. Did that have any impact, mm. do you think? Mm. Well, that's interesting because reading Harry Caldwell's descriptions of southern China, there was a lot of places around southern China that's, that seemed to have been very stripped of its woodlands as well. It seemed like much of the South China coast had been stripped down uh, in, a, in a similar way. Basically, where humans went, they just, they just took all the wood that they could find. And what was interesting with the tiger, whereas with, with certain other species, like for example with the wetland birds and the migratory birds, 
when the wetlands get concreted over, then the, these birds suffer greatly and it affects their migrations and, and their population numbers. But with the tigers, it seemed that they just, they seem to be very pragmatic and very, well, being very powerful and <laughs> not particularly sensitive. It seems that, you know, if their sort of ancient woodlands disappear, then they'll just adapt to what's there. And, and what happens when people strip trees out is uh, they, they're creating farmlands and they're bringing their pigs and the chickens and the dogs with them. And I think the, and the tigers seem just as happy to eat, mm. eat them as uh, they would have done chasing muntjacs and wild boar. Um, but uh, there, there's also, apparently there was, a, there was a sort of folklore in Fujian that said that the reason the tigers didn't go up into the woods was that they're vain and they don't like um, bird droppings on their lovely coats. <laughs> um, <laughs> so it had been noted that, um, and and maybe and questioned, you know, why, why aren't the tigers up in the hills further away from the humans? Well, apparently, you know, it's because of vanity. Either that, or they just <laughs> thought, well, why bother? Uh, these these humans have brought these yeah. lovely chickens and and pigs with them, so we'll just stick around. Yeah, so a ready source of <laughs> a ready source yeah. of food. I mean, what do you, I yeah. mean without human interference? What does a tiger eat? Anything except elephants, by the sound of it. <laughs> they're just fierce. They just they just seem to be very fierce, and they'll they'll go for anything that moves. They're, they're basically hundred percent carnivores, and uh, yeah, they'll get whatever they can catch. Yeah, and I, I would think with uh, as you say, if they're walking forty miles a day or moving across that amount of territory, then mm. uh, you do need a bit of food. I'm talking with John Seiki, the author of The Last Tigers of Hong Kong: True Stories of Big Cats That Stalked Britain's Chinese Colony. And the book is published by Blacksmith Books and uh, will be available by mid June in the shops. Now we've been talking about you know those early years, the tragedy of the the, the, the more well known story of the two police officers in. In 1915, who are both killed by this one tiger, who in turn is then shot dead. But uh, what was the prevalence, do you think, of tigers? Can you get any kind of statistics? Well, Herklotz had said that there were, there were yearly visits. There's no uh, solid statistics. No. So the statistics that I have come from my newspaper surveys, and I'd say it would average at maybe two a year mm. um, from 1910 through to the mid 1950s so Herklotz had said it in in 1932 he was giving a speech and he said tigers visit Hong Kong every year and then 1951 after he'd been in prison camp and he came out and he uh, released his book the Hong Kong countryside uh, again in the in the preface of that he mentioned that uh, tigers came to Hong Kong every year he didn't give a number he just said they came every year so with the newspaper reports that I've found, there'll be some years when there's th maybe three or four, and then there might be a year missing, or two years missing, and then another year when there's four or five. The period when uh, they were reported most intensely, interestingly enough, is after the war. So the late, oh. the second half of the 1940s into the 1950s, we've got maybe a dozen, a dozen tigers. Do you think that's due to more media coverage or actual tigers? Again, really difficult to know mm. what the reasons are. We know that there'd been, uh, well, for, for, for starters, there'd been very little information during the Japanese occupation. So there's a, there's a kind of a, a blank from 1941 to 1946, other than the 1942 Stanley Tiger. 
but after the Japanese occupation ended we've got 14 tiger appearances from 46 to 49 14 tigers wow yeah now remind uh, if you can remind us uh, about the 1942 Stanley tiger the record that is found in memoirs of people who were in the Stanley camp and it was a tiger that had been roaring outside the prison camp um, for, a, for a few weeks. Oh, how frightening. Yes, and uh, and they had a search party and, and they, they had guards who were just banging gongs and, and holding like sweeping brushes to, to arm themselves. But then eventually it was shot again by a, an Indian guard I believe from the records but I don't have a name but we do have a skin and the skin hangs at the Tin Hao Temple at Stanley yes I've seen that see skin it. it's all gone black yeah. hasn't it from it the, is yeah the, the incense smoke I think I wonder if it might yeah be the incense yeah because <laughs> there's thick incense there and then you've got 70 years of incense mm. uh, so uh, but you can see the stripes when you look closely I wonder, you know, if you could run it with a bit of detergent. Yeah, yeah, it could come come really clean. I had a chat with the lady who was sitting outside the Tin Hao Temple in Stanley, and I asked her if she knew of any other tiger appearances in Stanley from the 1940s or or after. And and she looked she looked terrified, and she said, "Oh no, 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 we'd we'd be dead if there were any more." And and I found that quite amazing because I'm assuming that her. Her family, friends and relatives had survived the Japanese occupation, the ones that did survive the occupation. And, and when you look at the records and you see what had happened during that occupation, it was definitely a lot more worrying that there was war going on sure. than there were tigers that were visiting. Yes. So, but... Now, that, that tiger, I mean, I heard different stories on whether tigers could swim and mm. uh, whether it was a, you know, a circus tiger that had escaped. Mm -hmm. But, yes. I mean, is your view that it was just a, a South China tiger like all the others? Yeah, I've seen some debates on uh, the Gulo site, uh, which is absolutely excellent. And there, there has been some discussion about whether it was a circus tiger or not, which is absolutely fine but and and there, there was some mention that there apparently there had been a circus from the philippines that had been visiting before the japanese arrived so it's possible but my view is that when you look at all the reports of the wild tigers that were being picked up before and after the war and um, it doesn't make the circus tiger any more likely than mm. a wild tiger yes and then we also have one expert on hand her clots again i mean you have to keep referring back to her clots because he did so much i think to record the wildlife of hong kong but he was actually in the stanley camp at the time of the appearance of this tiger in 1942 and he didn't see it himself but he saw a, a photograph of it after it had been shot and at that time, there was also the reports of, of a circus escapee. But he said he looked at the photographs and, and he, he scoffed at the people who, who needed to make an excuse for the tiger being there. And he, he commented, and he, and he does this a few times over the years, he comments on how frustrating it is to convince incredulous people that 
tigers were just a very normal and regular occurrence in southern China. But isn't it interesting, you know, when you look at some of those early reports, and even right up until now, it's, it's sort of there's um, one uh, famous circus family troupe that now have finally said that they're not going to use wild animals anymore. So it's always been this thing where you use the wild animals for entertainment, and I think it blurs mm. the lines because, um, you know, when you were saying about these gladiators in, in mm. Indonesia, but um, uh, there's mm. also a story that you've got here in 1928 on board HMS Cumberland, where a tiger mm. cub is, is used as a ship's mascot. Yes, yeah. I was really surprised when I saw the reports of that, but it went on for a few weeks. A pair of hawkers brought this six-week-old cub to Hong Kong Island, and they offered it up to the botanical gardens for sale, but they, the botanical gardens turned it down, said it would, be, it would cost too much to look after it. And there was a Mr. H. Green was the superintendent of the Botanical and Forestry Department. Now, apparently he took this tiger in and him and his wife were looking after it when a journalist heard the story, came knocking on the door and found Mrs. Green hand feeding this tiger raw steak. So that's the first we hear. And then it kind of the stories disappear. And then a few weeks later, it turned into a mascot of the HMS Cumberland. It was a British warship that plied the waters between Shanghai down to Hong Kong, down to Singapore and up and down. And, and I find it a little bit hard to understand why someone who was the superintendent of the Botanical Forestry Department would allow this tiger to become a ship's mascot. But we don't really have the full story of the chain of events that went from Mr. Green's wife hand feeding it raw steak to next turning up on this boat. So there were reports, journalists went on and interviewed the, the sailors and, and went to look at the, this tiger and, and they found it really absolutely beautiful. Mm. At the beginning it only had four teeth. Uh, it made friends with the ship's cat and, and side, <laughs> just as side well side with it. Yes, yeah. um, but it also had a, a fascination for looking down down the hatches and there was one report of it falling down a hatch and and it being commented on that you know it was over curious but it, it, it seemed to survive it so um, did they batten down the hatches after that um well i, I think they should have done oh dear <laughs> but in the end it was found that it had, yeah, it had died when it fell down a hatch. Oh. Um, so it lasted a few weeks, enough mm. to actually leave Hong Kong on the ship and go to Shanghai and come back. Your story is yeah. a little bit animal welfare or the lack thereof. In this last Tigers of Hong Kong, you tell the story from 1900 and uh, right up, as you say, to the late 1950s into the early 1960s, along with this lady that you talk to outside the temple. Tell me about some of the New Territories accounts. The best ones I, I got from people that I worked with, uh, friends of mine. Yeah, so you're saying people that you worked with, so their families yeah. came from yeah. sort of rural areas of the New Territories? Yeah, yeah. It was my friend Anne. Yeah. Um, actually, she was a friend from Lama, and it was uh, it was her grandmother. Uh, her grandmother had seen the tiger, and her mother had eaten wild boar flesh uh, that had been killed by a tiger. Oh. Oh, sorry, her mother refused to eat it. Sorry, she was in the village when they brought it back. So Anne told me that her mum uh, was born in 1938, and she grew up in uh, Tinkok Village in the Taipo area, yes. which is where so many of the tiger stories did come from that were reported in the press. Uh, she said they overlooked the uh, Patsing Leng mountain range and they lived a very rural 
life. Now, so Anne's mother didn't see the tiger herself, but her grandma did uh, when she went up the Patsing Leng to cut firewood. And it was about a 30 minute hike up uphill from the village that they were in. So uh, Anne's mother was about 12 to 14 years old when it happened. So she dates it at around 1950 or 52. One of the things that her grandmother had told her mother was that if you see a tiger, run downhill because tigers' uh, front legs are shorter than their back legs. And this is something that, that Harry Caldwell wrote about in the 1910s and 20s. And so much like it's just South China tiger law that people <laughs> passed from each other in the villages. Things that, you know, this kind of the British administrators and, and officers who were ruling Hong Kong had no idea about. Um, so people who were being brought up in, in, in a village near Taipo were just told by the grandmother, listen, you know, when you see a tiger, just run downhill. They can't, <laughs> you know, it's the best way to get away from them. Another thing they did was to carry gongs around with them, loud gongs, uh, just to bang these gongs and um, scare the tigers away. You mentioned there Harry Caldwell, who's from a, an earlier era and, and was a very famous tiger, an effective tiger hunter, and uh, who actually then would produce a book later. Yes, he went out there as a missionary and uh, he was already an accomplished hunter for, uh, from uh, the United States. He didn't know anything about tigers existing in South China when he was posted there as a missionary. But he, he found out about them after local villagers saw how effective he was when he went out hunting for deer. And they, they came to him and said, look, we've got problems with these tigers that are coming into homes and, and, and attacking children and attacking grass cutters. And he, he went out looking and, and discovered his first tigers after he'd already been posted as a missionary. He went after the first tiger, which was causing so much trouble in the neighbourhood that people he'd converted to Christianity weren't coming to the church he'd built for fear of the tigers that were lurking in the neighbourhood. So he had to get rid of the tigers to get people to go to the church. But when he did shoot tigers, then he found that his conversion rate went up really high because people thought that whatever God he was following must be very, very effective God. Um, so he, he discovered that tiger hunting was a, a tool for Christian <laughs> missionary work. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, um, fewer tigers, more Christians. Um, yeah, but uh, yeah. Harry Caldwell, yeah, you're able to sort of track his accounts because he actually, he, yeah. is it Blue Tigers? What's, what's his book? Yeah, still... curiously named Blue Tiger. <laughs> so that was, that was his, the title of his his memoirs of being a missionary in China. He spent hours observing the South China tiger in its lair. He, you know, one of the things he used to do was track down where the lair of the tiger was. Uh, he'd wait for the tiger to go out on its hunt and then he'd go and sit in, in the lair waiting for Ooh. hours and hours for it to come back. And then he'd, he'd watch what it did and, and if there were cubs, how it was behaving, how they were behaving and, and how they ate and, and then eventually kill it. <laughs> Which is terrible. It's um, it sounds really terrible, but that's how I think he he got to know the behaviour and the characteristics of the tiger. 
You know, you wrote this book of The Last Tigers of Hong Kong. What would you mm. say when you were first researching it? What was it, you know, the Harry Caldwell stories or what was it that, that first appealed to you about the idea of these tigers? It's, I don't know how to say anything that sounds very profound about this, but <laughs> it's just that it's such an awesome, wild, scary beast. <laughs> And perhaps the image that most of us have of Hong Kong, uh, those of us who travel into Hong Kong from elsewhere, is that of a very domesticated and a very artificial 